This is the Sean Campbell Show, a podcast for the aspiring and hungry entrepreneur. Hey everybody, Sean Campbell, Sean Campbell Show, a podcast by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. The 100th episode. Who? You don't know, it, but I've been actually pumping up the 100th episode for about a week and a half, Jim. Well, and I haven't told anybody. Nobody who this special guest was. <laughs> so I'm going to have a bunch of people that are going to be a little pissed, a little chapped. <laughs> Jim Contan's right. A buddy of mine that uh, part of my job today is kind of made me cry a little bit. And the reason why I, I, I that you were the number one on my list is because you were really, uh, honestly, just an inspiration from the beginning. Wow. wow. You, you and I, Jim, knew each other for about a year before I knew what the hell you did. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I still haven't figured out everything, but long story short, I was the first year or so, year and a half of my business, I, I was working out of a Starbucks, and you would go in there every single day about the same time. Yeah. And I always thought you're, you know, you're retired and you know, just living a life, going there and sipping your espresso and just catching up with friends every day. <laughs> Until one day you came up to me and you asked me if I was going to school. I don't know if you remember that. I don't at the moment. But yeah, you asked me and I was flattered because you thought I was that young. <laughs> <laughs> well, that probably one of the days in my glasses fog. Right, right. But uh, I mean, and honestly, yeah, I didn't know what. It, but a year passed, but every single conversation, even before then, was just uh, very inspiring. And I really... I, I enjoyed talking to you. You're, you're a very interesting person. I don't know. I think it was a, some, you're slipping something in your coffee. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was always very intriguing and very inspiring, and part of what I want to do is accomplish something. You know, if I can accomplish a little bit of what you did in your life, I mean, it, it, I would consider it a, a big-time victory. You and your wife are both inspired me so I kind of wanted to put that out there and that's why you're the lucky person to be on my 100th episode well as I told you the other day I'm just pissed off that you didn't call me (laughs) (laughs) so it's another thing it's like you and I have these uh, very interesting emails from time to time (laughs) I don't know about you but I'm drunk most of the time (laughs) well that's Maybe a consequence of what we do for a living. Probably, probably. Would you mind, you know, telling the audience uh, a little bit about your your, your professional history? Hmm. And well, you, I, you can say bad words on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because I wouldn't be able to make any points with that. <laughs> it, it was an accident, really. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I was a biology major. Mm-hmm. And I was enjoying it, uh, but I I enjoyed art when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. So several people had suggested that I try to get a part time job uh, that was related to that, and and I did. The first job I had was with a uh, a publisher of Catholic books at the University wow. of Notre Dame. Wow. <laughs> And I didn't have much to do with the editing. It was more the promotion side of it that they sort of pushed me toward. And I liked it. Mm -hmm. But then I got a job offer uh, a year or so after that from an advertising agency. And 
they it they knew very little about me, so it kind of surprised me because mm. they they pursued me uh, through another contact. And at the time, I was a senior, I believe. <laughs> their their offer for a salary was more than I would have made. It was more than my professors were making. Wow! <laughs> and I thought, you know. A year, yeah. what's it going to hurt? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, and I just got hooked on it. It, it. It's fun. And your comment about what what do you do for a living is help other people make their living. It's, yeah. it's basically what it gets down to. Yeah. I was, <clears throat> one of my jobs, uh, first big job, I suppose, was at... Uh, company called Bazell and Jacobs, which was a, a big advertising company at the time. It was a fifth or sixth mm-hmm. one. <clears throat> but it's disappeared as it's been absorbed in other acquisitions and things for years. Um, but I was working for them, and my parents were out visiting, and I was on the phone with a client who was irritating me. <laughs> and <clears throat> it then I got off the phone and t- called my boss to vent. And my dad said, why do you do this? And I said, and I I didn't even think about it. I said, because I don't know what I want to do for all of it. <laughs> and that pretty much is what made it fun. Yeah. I didn't realize it until I said it. But every every client, every customer expects you to have a really strong understanding mm-hmm. of what they do, how they do it, what their marketplace is. Yeah. Uh, because they're expecting they're ex- expecting us to advise advise them mm-hmm. um, whether that's a good or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And one of my uh, frequent collaborators used to introduce me to the clients is the guy who tells the emperor he has no clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it's true. Uh, we all see what we want to see. Right. And right. Believe what we want to believe. <laughs> and <laughs> very frequently we get so obsessed with what we're doing on our own yeah. that we can't see us from the outside. Right. Right. And that's, I suppose, bottom line, that's how I made my yeah, it's very intriguing how you, how you just stated that sometimes we have to know our clients' business better than, or we do know. Um, you, I had the pleasure of meeting one of your clients about a year and a half ago. Yeah, did some work for him, Harris. Harris, Harris is phenomenal. She's she's a great guy. Phenomenal dude. I mean, super intriguing, super cerebral. Um, he is uh, a jeweler in Atlanta, but. Um, I, I can't say enough phenomenal things about him and his wife, right? Yeah, and their staff. They're extraordinary people. But, but, but you're right. I mean, you know his business. I mean, you could step in and run his business tomorrow. And that's not a slide against Harris. No, it's, it's, it's not. And <clears throat> Harris knows that. Mm-hmm. But we've been working. Typically, relationships in our business mm-hmm. are fairly brief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Either their business grows more than we can keep up with it, or we tell them one too many times that they're yeah. naked. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. <clears throat> but Harris has been a client now for, we were trying to figure that out last week, I think 27 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, uh, well, as an example, he's coming out mm-hmm. in uh, mid-April. Okay. Yeah. For the remnants of the gym show. Right, right. And I said, why do you want to do that? And he said, well, I didn't give a shit about the gym show. We're just, Jerry, his wife, and I just want to come up and hang out. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, that'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, how many clients just show up? Right, right. Because they're in Atlanta, so it's not like they can just drop in without thinking about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I I wish this podcast had a, a video. Yeah, we could show some of the some of the ads they used to run for Harris were a bit edgy, would you say? <laughs> yeah, they were. But then his business was edgy. Right. Right. And I think it's one of the things that um in, in working um uh, for the uh, it was it was a brief period of time with Harris, I mean, and with yourself is collaborating with the two of you really pushed the the creativeness, and I use some of that for some other clients to see how far mm-hmm. I can push. Yeah, you know, well, you, you, you did. You changed your style very quickly. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. And I and I applied some of, you know, obviously not the same copy or whatever, but I, there's still a lot of little uh, nuances um, with the applicable clients that I learned from Harris. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, how, what was your first? client that you worked with that you just like made it real made it to where you felt that you uh, reached a, a level in your industry that you're like uh, that you're legit I guess I would say Valvoline although they were not my my favorite client <laughs> but it was it was a national brand mm-hmm. and I was young uh, it always sounds like bragging, but I was I was a senior vice president for Bazell when I was 29. Mm-hmm. So I moved through that fairly rapidly. So being assigned to a high-level marketing account management position with a national brand was a pretty big deal. And that was one of the reasons that I went to Atlanta to begin with. Mm-hmm. I was transferred there by Brazil, but part of the reason for that is that Belvoline had come on as a client for that office, mm-hmm. and they, at the same time, they had picked up Russell Athletic, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I spent more time working on Russell Athletic, but I suppose it was the Belvoline connection. <laughs> I'm a racing fan, have been for years. Uh, to show up at a racetrack and see <laughs> see my company, my work hanging right. on the wall there, it's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and and somebody would call up and say, uh, "We're going to use Richard Petty as a spokesman for something. Why don't you go over there and talk to him?" <laughs> okay, okay, sure. Yeah, I got time. Yeah. Exactly. How long have you and your wife and Lee been working together? <clears throat> I at least twenty five years. Wow! Wow! Uh, Is there one strength that she has, and vice versa, that make you such a good fit for each other? I, I the easiest way I think I could explain it is 
neither one of us get terribly rattled about uh-huh. those things. Um, so if there's a problem, the problem is generally handled calmly to try to figure out how to solve it, yeah. not to just vent. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is respect. Um, I I understand and appreciate design mm. uh, and, and all kinds of art, but I have the fairly typical problem that my brain can see it and my hand can't produce it. Mm. Uh, and Elaine doesn't feel comfortable doing what I do. Yeah. So for most clients, you need a, a combination of those two things. And there was never an argument. It's like if it's a marketing issue uh, or a strategy issue, even if we disagreed, that was my decision. Right. Right. And if I didn't like green on that particular layout, it was tough <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything missing from this era of, of uh, branding, marketing, advertising that you miss from? The, the your era to, to me when, when I think of you know advertising 10, 20 years ago it seemed more creative there was creativity was more widespread I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it was more creative than it is now because mm-hmm. there is some spectacular work being done now but like all almost all business has become a much more corporate mindset. The uh, one of the most awkward things for me now is walking into a large corporation meeting and having to interpret the short in the language. Yeah, um, and it's pervasive, but a lot of it makes no sense. Uh, it, it's a word that doesn't have any backup. Yeah. And there's no passion behind it. So maybe the passion is the thing that is missing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it's still, that it's really missing. It may be that I just got lucky that we had a fair number of clients who were very passionate about what they did mm-hmm. and wanted the world to know about it. Um, so we became more guides than cheerleaders. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. wasn't a whole lot of issue with, I'm going to have to push this guy yeah. to do this for him to get something. Yeah. If you had if you had a chance to work with a new client today, would you rather work with a, a brand new startup or someone who's been in business for 20, 30 years? I don't think it would make a whole lot of difference. It's, it's the mindset yeah. of of the client that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I hear frequently, and of course I'm, I'm I just turned seventy a couple of days ago. And oh, happy birthday! Well, thank this is a big week for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna put that on my calendar. <laughs> An interview with Sean Thursday that everybody ignored. <laughs> <laughs> my dad went to the hospital that day. Oh. Um, so I was the last thing on anybody's mind. And mm. <laughs> my mom called up to, well, so, I'm so upset that I didn't call you because she usually calls and sings the world's worst version of Happy Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> 
and she did, and I said, I got off easy this time. Um, she said, I just, I feel so bad about this. She said, well, you got the other 69 right, so I'm right, sure right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you had an excuse. But, yeah. Uh, I don't have that kind of face-to-face with them anymore, mm-hmm. so uh, I hear the language, I hear people talking, and there are certainly a lot of startups that are very passionate about what they do. I just read about one yesterday that on the surface struck me as kind of a silly idea, but they were so enthusiastic about it. And I thought, I'd like to work with them. Mm-hmm. They uh, they were two roommates, had been roommates in college, mm-hmm. and they had all Apple products, mm-hmm. and their AirPods batteries were failing as, as all small batteries do over right, time. Right. And they're almost impossible to replace. In fact Apple doesn't replace them. Oh well. They have a battery program. Yeah. By the way, I'm an appointment for that tomorrow. <laughs> they have a battery program where they charge you like uh, I think it's seventy nine dollars mm-hmm. to have your batteries replaced. They don't replace the batteries, they replace the the air Apple doesn't want to take the right, apart. Right. These people built robots that could take this thing apart, put the battery in, and put it back together. Oh, wow. And I thought, that's a lot of work for right. what seems like a very limited market. Yeah. But they are so enthusiastic about it. Wow. Um, I thought, yeah, that, that could, could, could succeed. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what makes a good ad? Engagement. I, I can't think of a, a simpler way of putting it because yeah. it changes all the time. Um, it depends on the product and the customer you're dealing with. Yeah. But the, the real purpose of any ad is to get somebody to read it mm-hmm. and, and, get, and understand what the message is that's being delivered. You can't force them to like your idea, mm-hmm. but and you can't force them to read it. But if you can get them to, and you have something to say that they find appealing, right. then that becomes a good ad. Right. And that's one. Of the, it's an issue that we've had to fight all along. Um, the majority of clients uh, are are. They have short time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're busy. Yeah. So when we bring an ad in, um, everyone, one of the most common things we heard is, well, it has too many words. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was working with a local uh, restaurant recently, and his complaint was that my copy was too wordy. He yeah. literally wanted less than five words in every Facebook ad. <laughs> All in caps. I'm like, what? Yeah, well... That's not going to go very far. No, no. But it's the words that yeah. sell the product. Yeah. There are rare cases where you can pull it off with an image. One of the first right, right. ads we did for uh, for Harris was um, they had a growing business of engagement rings, mm-hmm. which at the time seemed odd because Harris's store was located in the heart of the, the gay community mm-hmm. in Atlanta. So you wouldn't 
you wouldn't think that engagement rings would be a big deal, but it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but our, the headline for that ad was, we've got the rings, give us the finger. <laughs> and it was just a photograph of a ring. And it was one of those instances where there wasn't much else to say. Uh, you know, here's my address. Right. And it was phenomenally successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> for a while, Harris subscribes to all kinds of uh, jeweler communication thing. Yeah. And he would frequently send us clippings from the magazines about um, somebody talking about the great ad that this company right. did. Right. I mean, and of course, right. it was our ad. Yeah. And there's no way to copyright that, but it was yeah. it's flattering. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll let you go either way on this question. Has there ever been either a an ad that you thought would do phenomenally well, completely flopped, or an ad that you thought was going to flop that did phenomenally well? One of one of the uh, those two that stand out. We've had our share of uh, things that we thought would work that didn't. Mm-hmm. And it, it almost always came down to misinterpreting the mindset of the people that we were talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we didn't understand them. It's not that they didn't understand us. Right, right. Uh, and that was, that was hard for a lot of clients to accept. So mm-hmm. that's where we, we frequently had to stick our neck out is to say, you yeah. know, your story isn't working um, the way you present it. We have to find a different way of presenting it because the story is valid. The product is valid. Um, One of our long-term clients was automated logic. Automated logic still exists, but they've been absorbed by Carrier, and Carrier has been absorbed by United Technologies. Mm -hmm. So... They went from being a very uh, entrepreneurial company to being a cog in a big, mm-hmm. a big corporate wheel. But they had, they had developed a, a, a graphical interface to manage heating and ventilation systems in in big buildings. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, they were all manageable, but they were done with line coding. Hmm. So they really needed an engineer hmm. to manage those systems. Automated logic made it simple enough that you didn't need an engineer. You needed somebody who understood heating and ventilation, but they didn't have to be an engineer. Hmm. They didn't have to code anything. And that was a difficult message to get across to a, a business that was driven by an engineering mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had we had a few shots early on where we just didn't hit the point. Right. And we had to finally figure out that what we thought they might think was cool about this mm-hmm. probably wasn't. Mm-hmm. And we had to find a different approach. But once we did, it took off really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not the most exciting client we worked with, <laughs> but I liked the, the guy that ran the company was one of the nicest human beings I've ever known. Yeah. Uh, but it, when we found them, they had just released the uh, the first version of that software. 
And there was nothing like it at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was a small company. They had maybe 25 people working there. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and Gary came to us. I threw a reference with a, a previous client. And he just wanted logos. Mm -hmm. And it just, we hit it off with him. Mm -hmm. And he liked the logos and the ideas. And we just kept going. But over time, we helped build that company. Mm -hmm. And I could see how it was helping so it might have been the most rewarding thing we did because by the time Gary sold that company, they had 450 employees. Mm. Wow. So we, we could see a growth in the business. And I, you know, I'm not going to claim that I built it, but I contributed to the growth. Right. And I, I contributed to job growth. There are right. people who are making a very good living because of how we yeah. helped them yeah. get their message out. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that's probably one of the most satisfying accounts? Yeah, it certainly was. Um, and the other good part about that, Gary was a tad eccentric, and he was rich to start with. He was the, we were in Atlanta at the time, he was the prototype Southern gentleman. Mm -hmm. Every time Elaine came to a meeting, he would shake her hand and give her a, a, a light kiss on the cheek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people didn't act like that even right. then. Right. But he was a, he had some eccentricities. He asked me to pick him up to go. We were going to visit one of their customers. He wanted me to pick him up at his house, which I did. And he lived in a magnificent neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> he said, "Well, just pick me up in front of the garage." So I drove. Up. I don't see a garage. There, it's there's nothing there. I mean, it's a house. It has a nice big door, and it's got a landscape on the front. Uh -huh. And then I heard this creaking. The He had a hydraulic lift built in front of his garage. Because <laughs> he didn't want to see it. His wife said the garage was ugly. Uh -huh. It might have been. I don't know. I never saw the garage. Uh, <clears throat> but he had this thing installed and then built planters on it oh, that wow. really couldn't see. So the garage door didn't open and close. The lift oh, moved geez. the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking that well I find myself in some weird spots <clears throat> yeah. because yeah. of these connections. Yeah. But the it, it really did feel good to, to yeah. be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. But let's talk about some of your adventures. I mean, one of the, uh, <laughs> more on the personal side, you spent some time in Italy. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, some, of your, some of the coolest stories that we've talked about were uh, your time in Italy. Yeah, we, Elaine and I have joked uh, a lot because I have, Four, well, three brothers and a sister. Mm. Uh, so I can't, and I was, I had 26 cousins. Wow. <laughs> they were Catholics, <laughs> so maybe I didn't even say that. Uh -huh. um, but we had no children. Mm. So everybody else was saving money for college programs and that sort of thing. And Elaine and I bought a house in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was always. <laughs> That was 
was always the joke. This is right. Right. this would have been our child's college yeah. education. Yeah. I my family came from there. My dad's parents mm-hmm. grew up there, so and we ended up living. Well, we never lived there full time, uh, but our we bought a house, and it was about. 30 miles from where my dad's parents had oh, wow. grown up. Wow. Um, so it felt, culturally it felt like home. Uh-huh. Uh, I never became very good at the language. Mm-hmm. But I, Italy is very regionalized yeah. in, in food yeah. and dialect and yeah. culture. Yeah. And it was, it was, it felt like going to my grandparents' house. Yeah. Um, so I, I found it easy to fit in. Have you caught the show uh, Stanley Tucci uh, searching uh, for Italy? I got through Lombardy, or uh, no, uh, Lazio uh-huh. yesterday, so I think I'm halfway through it. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. His family is from Calabria, which uh-huh. is where my family was from. And I've read through the synopsis. He never goes to Calabria in the series, which oh. strikes me as odd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is this where you got some of your culinary expertise, Jim? I got that from desperation. <laughs> <laughs> I had been married um, <clears throat> once before, and once. Once we divorced, I realized that she'd done most of the cooking, and I realized I was either going to eat at fast food restaurants for the rest of my life and learn how to cook, and it didn't take very long. I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah. At the time, I was learning to do that. Uh, Julia Child was on Mm -hmm. uh, live, and Jacques Pepin. Mm -hmm. They were both incredible teachers. Uh Uh, I really liked Jacques. He... He didn't necessarily give you a recipe. He gave you a technique uh-huh. for how to do something. Uh-huh. And in the process of that, you ended up with something edible at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but I just got hooked on it. So. Yeah. Going into your, your first meeting with uh, uh, a new client, how is it important or how much time would you spend on setting expectations? For the client, almost none. Uh-huh. Um, by the time there was an agreement to meet, there had already been something like that established. Um, so when it came down to selling ourselves, <clears throat> I never found that there was much value, at least for the kinds of clients that we had, mm. to prepare complicated or elaborate pitches for it. It was generally a personality-driven thing. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I've learned very early on is there are lots of marketing classes, but there are no marketing rules. Right. Uh, There are experiences that other people have had, but you rarely run into somebody who knows what they're doing, who says you have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, it really came down to they had to believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I couldn't say, well, on page 14 of this manual, it says that your ad has to do this. Uh, it had to be a collaborative agreement, mm-hmm. and that's what I always concentrated on, mm-hmm. making sure they understood that I was listening to them and hoping that they would listen to me. Yeah. And if we did, we hit it off, and then it would go very well. Yeah. And, of course, there were multiple instances where that didn't work. Yeah. Uh, what, what's, what's the one thing that, for companies that get their advertising right, what are they doing right that makes it right? Than listening to their customers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've told you this story before, but I still think it's a, a really good example. With when automated logic <clears throat> started to take off mm-hmm. uh, with their their program, one of the issues was the I'm trying to think how to explain this clearly. Uh, the control of systems mm-hmm. was centralized, but it was frequently distributed based on need. For example, one of their biggest groups of customers were school systems. Mm-hmm. So the the administration building might be where all the heating and ventilation stuff okay. was controlled, but they were controlling Miss Peter's room, right. and you know. <clears throat> She, and to make sure that happened, they kind of had to take control away from those individuals. So everything became centralized, and that meant somebody had to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you have, you know, 20 schools in a district, um, they're going to be out of the office frequently. Mm-hmm. So their idea was, we have to make this as mobile as possible. And that means it has to run on the other devices. You can't run just on a desktop high-powered computer, so we needed to turn on laptops, and at that time, data plans on phones were becoming available. Mm-hmm. So they built, they rebuilt the program in Java, mm-hmm. because Java could, could run on multiple platforms. Mm-hmm. And in the initial meeting, about how they wanted to present that information, the chief technology officer was in there. And his he was adamant that the whole strategy had to be built around Java, mm-hmm. that we needed to explain to everybody what it was and how it worked and why it was a benefit to them. And I was almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody cares what language you use to write this. Right. What they want to know is, geez, I can change Miss Peter's temperature on my phone. Yeah. Uh, that gives them a freedom they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. But uh, it turned into a fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, we, we were both angry at each other, and there were, I don't know, seven or eight other people in the room that, were heavily involved in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally, Gary, who was the president, just said, Eric, you're wrong. Shut up. <laughs> uh, which you know, obviously didn't go very well. Right, 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 right. So he left the meeting. <laughs> but it was his inability to understand the value of what their product offered mm-hmm. rather than how it offered it mm-hmm. 
It would be like selling bread by telling everybody that it has flour in it. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just so fundamental to what it does. And he had spent two years of his life working on this, right. and he was rightfully very proud of it. Right. But he couldn't. He couldn't let it go long enough to see how other people could see it. Right. And that's something we ran into over and over again. Uh, every company who does well mm -hmm. is, again, very, very proud of what they've done, what right. they've built. Right. But the, the way they build it is not the way their customers use it. Mm. And you have to be able to see the result of what you did, mm. not just what you did. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe if you were selling Java training programs, Eric's approach might have worked. Yeah, right. Um, but that's right. not what they were selling. Right. right. And that's something that we frequently ran into. Yeah. Sometimes it was easier uh, to get that idea across. One of our customers was uh, Comfort Clinic. Uh, Comfort Clinic, again, has been absorbed mm. by multiple. Uh, but they were the first company that made the convoluted foam mm -hmm. mattress toppers. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the company had been inherited by one of the most handsome human beings I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Uh, <laughs> he just, he, I, just, I always felt bad when I left the office. Like, jeez. <laughs> Yeah, nobody even looked at me. <laughs> I was invisible. <laughs> but his his father's company made mattress pads, mm. but he made them for the medical industry. They were mm. meant to prevent bed sores on mm. long-term hospital patients. And Mike got the idea that, he said, these are kind of comfortable. Maybe we could sell them to consumers. <laughs> he was one of those people that Everything he touched went well. Uh, his first pitch was to Walmart. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Walmart said, oh, that's really cool. We want a million of those. Yeah. What, you know, whatever. Yeah. And Mike had a factory that <laughs> could barely put out a few hundred oh, a day. Wow. So then he had to go scramble to build the, yeah. the capacity to do this. Um, but that's, Mike understood mm -hmm. that there wasn't much point in saying, it'll help prevent bed sores. Right. Because who goes to bed worrying about bed sores? Right. right. But he understood that. So that's why he ended up coming to us. Cause he said, what we've been selling isn't going to work. Right. Uh, the product works, but the message won't. So yeah. we want to start over again. Is there any one medium today that you wish was around a little earlier so you could have more in? I'm not a, well, you already know this. I'm not a huge fan of social media, right. but it is a very useful and very effective mm -hmm. medium. There would have been, we could have done more with smaller clients. Uh -huh. Had that been available, yeah. Um, one of the barriers when we were, you know, at our peak is the cost right. of the communication was so high. Um, you had to have pretty severe commitment, right? Right. I mean, you could place an ad in 
on Facebook that covers the same number of people an outdoor board used to cover, at least people that it effectively contacts. Yeah. And you can do it for a tenth of what the board costs. Right. Uh, that would have that would have been very useful. Yeah. Yeah. And with the jewelry store, for example, right. he had so many niche markets. Uh, you know, one thing we learned early on is that the gay market was much different than the lesbian market mm. in what they wanted and how they were more effectively communicated to. We could have split that much more easily on social media, yeah. uh, but at the time there wasn't any. Yeah. Um, I mean that he uses it now. Uh, yeah. And frankly, I don't think he uses it effectively, mm. but his daughter is doing it. Yeah. So yeah. Harris thinks that's effective enough. Yeah. yeah. And it probably is. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's easily tracked, and that's the other thing. Uh, most of what we had to offer as tools were very difficult to justify because mm -hmm. you couldn't directly see the results for most of it. Right, right, right. Is there any one company or multiple companies out there who's advertising that you're always impressed by? Apple. Apple, yeah. And Apple has changed its approach to broadcast a bit, and I don't, frankly, I don't think it's as effective as it used to be. Yeah. But they did a brilliant job of talking directly to the person. Yeah. You never felt like they were saying, everybody has to have this, and right. it's going to make your corporation great. They right. were always talking directly to the user yeah. about how it was going to help them. Yeah. Uh, and they did it effectively and cleanly. And now it's getting a bit more cluttered, but I think they were one of the best at doing it. Yeah. I, have you have we ever talked about what do you read a lot? I can still read, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll I always I always ask my, 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 my guests uh, for a book that they'd recommend. Well, what's a book that uh, two, two part question. One book what would that has influenced you the most and what book would you recommend somebody listening right now? One of the books that I think impressed me the most when I read it was Slaughterhouse-Five. Hmm. Um, the imagination behind that story, mm -hmm. it, it would just always impress me. Mm -hmm. The way he was able to leap through mm -hmm. different time segments and still make it seem like it was a, a knit-together knit story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I two-thirds of the way through one now called Clara and the Sun. Okay. And it's written by, uh, I'm not sure I can even pronounce his name. It's a Japanese name, but he's, um, mm -hmm. he lives in Britain. But he wrote uh, The Remains of the Day. Okay. But this book is, is really almost a science fiction story. Clara is a an artificial intelligence, a robot, and she's solar powered. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she turns the sun into her god because that's where all of her right. strength comes right. from. Right. It's a. It sounds silly, but it's an absolutely fascinating story. Wow. Very well written. 
if you could have a dinner with three other people, famous people, somebody, no, no friends, nobody related to, just three random people who would be. Well, I've, I've been a lifelong racing fanatic. Right. Um, so Mario Andretti. Hmm. I've met him a couple of times, oh, cool. and he's interesting to talk to. Um, also, through that same medium, uh, Paul, Paul Newman huh. was a very active uh -huh. Yeah. But amateur racer. Yeah. He never made his living at it. Yeah. Uh, but he used to race near a racetrack that I used to go to all the time. <laughs> and once he's at the track, he's just Paul, the guy who drives this car. Wow. Um, and Fenneman, the, the physicist who wrote oh. most of the... Uh, most of the research conglomeration for quantum. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> everyone said, what the hell was going on in your head? Right. right. This could actually be true. <laughs> wow. And, and what are you making everybody for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> well, I came across a good, by chance, uh, a good recipe the other day that mm -hmm. Elaine said, I think this is my new favorite. Oh. It's... Uh, Ina Garten's recipe, she doesn't get a lot of um, hype or enthusiasm, mm -hmm. but she really knows how to cook. Jack mm -hmm. uh, Anthony Bourdain one time said he was he stopped watching TV cooks because none of them knew what they were doing except yeah. Ina. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. <clears throat> but it's a... not really sure what the word is. A filet chicken. Uh -huh. um, um, cut the backbone out and flatten it. Uh -huh. And it's cooked on a layer of s sliced lemons, uh, garlic, and fennel. Mm -hmm. And then the chicken sits on top of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's cooked at 425, so it's oh, wow. a, yeah. a high temperature. Yeah. And there, you get about halfway through the cooking and then add almost two cups of wine oh, wow. to finish it, and it wow. makes its own sauce. Huh. It's amazing how much flavor that chicken picks up from from the things underneath, and wow. it came out just juicy on the inside, crisp on the outside skin. As weird as it sounds, one of the many things I miss about you know just seeing you every morning was... Wondering what you made the night before. What did you cook last night? <laughs> you know, last night I cooked something that worked. There is a dish that's uh, very common, especially in Central Italy, called mm -hmm. cacio e pepe. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for you know, most yeah. people don't know, but cacio is a type of cheese that's uh -huh. very similar to uh, what we call romano. Uh huh. And it, it has pasta, the cheese, and uh, very coarsely ground pepper. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. It's pure technique. Yeah. If you don't get the technique, it doesn't make the sticky sauce right. the cheese melts. 
And I've probably tried that a dozen times. It always tastes the same. Mm-hmm. But I just go, it's not supposed to look like that. They're oh. not supposed to be lumps of cheese. Right? <laughs> it's supposed to be saucy. And I got it right. Uh, for some, this is some of the best Italian recipes only have maybe three or four ingredients. It's very true. Yeah. But, but you're right. It's all technique. It's all technique. Well, this one I finally, <laughs> I cheated, I guess. Um, normally you would put that, you get the pasta about half cooked uh, and then put a, a ladle of mm-hmm. water in the pan and that's where the pepper goes. Mm-hmm. So you cook the pepper that way a little bit and then put the pasta in it mm-hmm. and you're feeding it as you were, mm-hmm. you're finishing the cooking in in the pan instead of in the pot. And towards the end, you put the pasta in it and it's supposed to melt and right. form. Right. But that means you have to have just the right amount of water right. left at the end. <laughs> and I thought, that's where I think I've always failed. <laughs> I put the cheese in a little a little bowl and added the water to that. Oh, wow. And melted it. So I had yeah. this pasty stuff yeah. first. Yeah. And when I thought it had the right amount of water, I dumped that in. <laughs> so I still didn't get the technique right, but the, the, the result was correct. I think the new video series is mine, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Lane would say that the real video was the cleaner. Right, right. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you know taking the time to drive down here and you know spend you know a little bit of your afternoon and it was an honor it really is an honor to have you it's my 100th uh <laughs> not my 100th guest but on my 100th episode um uh it was funny because last week i was or the week before two weeks ago i'm like i gotta be close to 100 so i'm counting them yeah and i was like i'm at 99 <laughs> <laughs> and that's when i emailed you to see if you're Thank you for listening to the Sean Campbell Show. Follow us on Instagram at the Sean Campbell Show.